Good morning. When I was a teenager, Providence Savings and Loan in Fairfax, where I was growing up, offered one of the best interest rates in the country. For an ordinary savings account, it was amazing. You got 10% interest on a savings account, imagine that now, and 5% interest on checking. Anybody know of somewhere where you can, a bank where you can get that much now? I don't, not locally. You might get one quarter of a percent. Oh. <coughs> Sorry, Brandon, forgot my mic. It was a great, it was a great opportunity and I invested all the money I had into that bank. I didn't have very much, unfortunately, but I, I put everything I had in there. Also, when I was a teenager, I decided to invest in a Holstein calf. I, I liked to spend a lot of time on the farm I, as much as I could. From I would go up to my grandpa's farm, the farm where Anita grew up, and uh, would spend time there. I loved it on the farm, so I bought a, or I invested in a Holstein calf, and she grew into a beautiful heifer. We bred her to a good bull, and uh, things were looking good. I was already picturing, by the time I'm 30, I'm going to have a nice herd of cows. And uh, she gave birth to this calf, and they both died. <laughs> it was gone. That was the end of that. That investment cost me. I tried again, and the second one died. <laughs> don't think I was meant to be a farmer. It was an investment that cost. When you think about the possibilities of what might come from an investment, it's exciting. There's a lot of possibilities there. Also, when you think about what an investment could cost you, it can be a little scary. The title this morning, as Ivan mentioned, is Investing in Others. Investing in, in others is a vast subject that I can't cover this morning. I'm not going to attempt to list for you all the ways that we could invest in others. Ways to invest in others can be as diverse as the people, personalities, and circumstances represented in this room. That's a lot. So how do I go about investing in others? Or could ask, what do I have to invest in others? When I think of investing in others, I have to think of Jesus' example. I want to think very briefly with you this morning about Jesus' example and a little about how he invested in others. And then I'm going to be turning to another passage. <clears throat> In Philippians chapter 2, we're told, I'm not going to turn there because you're familiar with it. Jesus did not cling to his rights. He didn't see them as something he should hang on to, but rather he gave them up. He humbled himself and he gave himself for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, it says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. 
Jesus gave. So Paul's encouragement to the Corinthians in giving was to look at the example of Jesus who gave. Flipping to uh, 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to read just a couple verses there that come to mind in thinking of Jesus' example. Investing in others. Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to jump in at verse 7 and read through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Jesus came to demonstrate love. Jesus is love. And because he has given us love, because God has given us love, he expects us in turn to give what he has given to us. I want to think briefly about how Jesus invested in people. Different, several different people I think of. Jesus had time for children. Children that others saw as insignificant or maybe didn't notice. But he called them to him. Jesus told when he was speaking to the rich young, the rich young ruler. In the rich young ruler, Jesus looked into the eyes of selfishness. And he loved him, we're told. He looked at a selfish person and loved. Jesus invested in his disciples even when they doubted him. And knew, who knew him better than they? Jesus loved the Pharisees enough to tell them the truth about their condition before God. Jesus was a friend of sinners at the risk of his reputation. Friend of sinners wasn't a positive. The word was on the street that he was a friend of sinners. And that wasn't a reputation you wanted to have. To be clear, Jesus didn't join sinners in sin, but Jesus loved sinners and was with them. I think of the woman at the well. Jesus went to the ethnic group that his country despised and took time to speak to a woman at the bottom of the totem pole in her society about her deepest need. He didn't label her. And ignore her or stay away from her, avoid her. But he went and spoke to her about her deepest need. What about Judas? 
Jesus loved Judas even when his love was not reciprocated. Even when he knew it would hurt him, he still loved. Those are just real quickly a few people I think of that Jesus invested in, people he loved. I'm going to be turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this morning. Going to be, want to think with you, want to look at 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. <clears throat> In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is speaking about using spiritual gifts and how every gift God gives is important to the body of Christ. Paul is addressing a problem that the Corinthians had in thinking that some of the gifts were far more important than other gifts. They were using what God had given them to invest in the church in self-serving ways instead of for the, to build up the body. At the end of chapter 12, it says, But earnestly desire the best gifts, Yet I show you a more excellent way. In, in chapter 13, Paul is emphasizing that love needs to be a way of life. God's love is to be the motivation for everything I do. The Greek word translated love in this passage is agape. This word was not in common use prior to the New Testament. But in the New Testament, it is the most commonly used word for love. Agape love is a self-sacrificing, a self-giving love. It is love for the unworthy. We see agape love best when we picture Jesus hanging on the cross, suffering, bleeding, willingly giving His life for us. For our sins. The only sinless person. He gave his life. For the sins of the whole world. Read the, uh, let's read the first couple verses in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. <clears throat> Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. But have not love. I have become sounding brass. Or a clanging symbol. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not love, it profits me nothing. Paul begins this chapter by addressing the three spiritual gifts that the Corinthians thought were most important. And tongues, if we could be the greatest order and be able to string words together in a way that grabs people's attention, holds them, and if it's not done in love, it's not going to profit me anything. It's meaningless noise 
the heart isn't in it. Notice in verse 2 all the alls there. All mysteries, all knowledge, all faith. Got three alls. All plus all plus all minus love equals nothing. Take love out of the equation and you have nothing. The end of verse 2. Even if, and, and Paul is building here in verse 3 to you give everything away to the poor and give your body to be burned. Even if I give up everything I can possibly give, what can I give? More than giving my life. And if I do it for selfish motives, if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. <clears throat> In verses 4 to 7, I think these, these four verses describe, really describe the life of Jesus. And when you compare the description of love in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7, with the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and verse 22, you'll notice there's a lot, there's some of the same words or similar words used both places. That may be because in, in Galatians 5.22, the words that follow love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, are describing love. <clears throat> when I look at these next couple verses, I, I realize how far short Nate falls. My desire is to show God's love in my life. And I see how far, how much I lack being all God intends for us to be. I'd like to look at the, at the next couple verses and just notice what it says about love here. Chapter 4, I'm sorry, verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself and is not puffed up. <clears throat> Love suffers long, or the word we would use is patient. Patience or long-suffering. It accepts annoyances and inconveniences without complaint. It's the opposite of being short-tempered. Love is kind. Kindness takes the initiative in, in responding to other people's needs. It doesn't wait and say, well, if I have to, sure, I'll do something kind. No, it's taking the initiative and looking for an opportunity to respond to, to needs. Love doesn't envy, or it's not jealous. It's not wanting what someone else has. If I want what I don't have, very likely, I won't be using what I do have, what God has given me for others. So told that love doesn't parade itself, it's not puffed up. Another translation says it, it is not boastful, it's not proud, it's not arrogant. Love recognizes the value of others 
And it recognizes at the same time that anything I have really is a gift from God. And so there's no reason for me to be puffed up. It's from God. And I give it back to Him. Going on in verse 5, it doesn't, does not behave rudely. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked and it thinks no evil. It's quite a list. It's not rude. It, rather, it considers how its actions will affect people around it. Love thinks of others. It doesn't seek its own. It doesn't demand having its own way. Willing to give in to others where it's not right and wrong. Neither is love provoked. Is not provoked. It's the NLT says love is not irritable or easily angered. One commentary I was reading, it's interesting, they said the um, authorized version must have had a translator who had a problem with anger because he added a word that's not there. He said, is not easily provoked. <laughs> and I'm told that is not in the in the original, so apparently there was a problem with anger there. And love thinks no evil. The verb thinks actually means to reckon or to take account of. It's to take inventory. The New Living Translation accurately translates it as keeps no record of being wronged. In Matthew 18, verses 20 and 22, Peter was keeping record. He was keeping record and he came to Jesus and said, How often? Should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And I'm sure Peter thought he was being really generous. Seven times? Can you imagine? This guy would do it seven times over. And what was Jesus' response? Seventy times seven. In other words, don't keep a record. Love doesn't keep a record. It forgives and moves on. <clears throat> love is willing to overlook wrongs verse 6 love does not rejoice in iniquity but rejoices in the truth love doesn't take any pleasure in the misfortunes of others it doesn't take pleasure in any injustice or wrong of any kind Love never says, serves him right. He had it coming. Love and truth are connected throughout Scripture. And love doesn't compromise truth. Love rejoices with the truth. Seven tells us that love bears all things. The word bears, a literal translation is love quietly covers all things. That was a surprise to me. I looked at it as, I was reading it as love enduring everything, but I'm told the word actually means to cover. Quietly covers all things. It doesn't spread the news of others' failures any further than necessary. It covers that and protects the person. 
1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8 says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Love believes all things. Love is not gullible. It's not taken by any smooth talker. So love is not gullible, but it's not suspicious. It gives others the benefit of the doubt. Believes what's best about them. Love hopes all things. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. It looks forward. It's not blind to optimism. It's not a refusal. I'm sorry, it, it is a refusal to see others' failure as final. When someone else fails, love is willing to say, I'll invest again. And I'll invest again. They reach out again. Love endures all things. Endures, the word means to stay under. It's the idea of being steadfast. It's active fortitude. Some of you know Harry and Lizzie Ann Yoder. Or knew, I should say, Harry and Lizzie Ann Yoder. They've gone on from uh, Chestertown, Maryland. Lizzie Ann was... Wayne's sister, and she was incapacitated by Parkinson's disease. I had to think of them in thinking about love enduring and love just caring about another person. She was incapacitated by Parkinson's disease, and Harry retired from church responsibilities. Harry traveled widely and, and preached, and he was a very social man who enjoyed Relating to people. And he retired from church responsibilities to care for her. Around the clock, year after year. Lizzie Ann was able to do less and less. And until finally, in her, her face with the, the uh, partial paralysis, the facial paralysis that comes with Parkinson's disease, she wasn't even able to smile. And remember well, Harry would be caring for her and ask her if things were okay and, and, or if she needed anything changed. And her expression wouldn't change. Mouth is hanging open and just slumped there. But you could see in her eyes the appreciation. My point is, she could do nothing for Harry. Harry was giving, giving, caring for her. He told me once, someone else can take my place in church, but no one else can be a husband to my wife. I made a promise, and I'm going to keep it. I respect that. Harry did that. I don't know, I don't remember exactly how long. I asked Wayne and he couldn't remember for sure either, something like 12 to 15 years that Harry cared for Lizzie Ann. Yeah. 
Eleven days after, after Lizzie Ann died, we buried Harry. It's an example of being steadfast. Loving when the other person is unable to return anything to you. There's no reciprocation. Love endures when circumstances are difficult. Love endures when a relationship is painful. Love endures when I don't understand what God is doing. Love endures all things. Verses 8 through 13 show the, the permanence of love. Let's go ahead and read uh, verses 8 through 13. <clears throat> love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know, just as I also am known. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Love never fails. It doesn't fall, collapse, suffer ruin. We're told prophecies will fail. That fail, the second fail is a different word. It means to render inoperative. Stops. The spiritual gifts that the Corinthians thought were more important than others' gifts, prophecy, tongues, knowledge won't be needed after Jesus returns. <clears throat> In verses 11 and 12, Paul gives two comparisons to show how limited our understanding is now compared to what it will be in eternity. First is 11, it's when he was a child. He thought like a child. Or he spoke like a child, understood like a child, thought like a child. We don't criticize a toddler for not understanding everything that an adult does. They can't. It's not possible. And looking in a... Yeah, that's, and that's the, the difference that will be for us in eternity. When we, are, when we are with Jesus, there will be a vast difference in our understanding, in our ability. He also used the example of a mirror. The mirrors of the time, understand, would have been a, a uh, polished, highly polished metal. But it was something that gave a distorted, it wasn't a sharp, clear view. Looking at an image in, a, in 
a distorted mirror versus face to face. What you could see was dim and distorted. Our knowledge, our knowledge here and now is partial. Understanding is partial. But someday, we'll be face to face. We're told that now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. There's three that remain beyond when the spiritual, when spiritual gifts are no longer needed. Those three remain. Faith or trust in God will continue throughout eternity. Hope will continue and continually be fulfilled. And love. God is love. Love is the greatest. God who is is the source of love because He is love, asks me to give to others what He's given to me. Because He is infinite, the supply is limitless. Romans 5.5 says that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. I picture it like a teapot. Water is poured into the teapot And you pour it out of the spout. What is poured in gets poured out into one cup and another cup and another. God's pouring in and we are to pour out what God pours in through the Holy Spirit. God supplies. God changes the heart. In John 13, 35, we're told that Jesus said, by this will all Know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's when Christians love each other, others look on and are drawn to Jesus. All people fall into two categories, those who have experienced God's love and those who still need to. And we're called to love all people. I believe our infinite God, who is love, longs to communicate to each of us how He would like to invest in others through us, through each of us. He wants to communicate that to us. For the Christian, investing in others should be a normal part of my life, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing. Jesus' ministry, his investing in others, was surrounded by prayer. And as I look at 1 Corinthians 13, I see how I lack love and need growth. I see the same in prayer. I believe it's so important. Prayer is our connection with our Father. Prayer was Jesus' connection with the Father when he was here on earth. He did nothing. Except what he, he said nothing but what he heard the Father telling him to say and did nothing but what he saw the Father doing. He was in communion with the Father. His ministry came out of his relationship with the Father. I think that's important for us as well. When we lived on 
Laxo First Nation in northwestern Ontario, we were praying that people would come to Jesus as a result of our being there. And I want to tell you that God did it. I'm praying now that through our running clean-cut lawn care, people will come to know Jesus personally and that Christians will be encouraged. Sometimes I have to remind myself of that. When I'm behind, I have a lot of work to do, and someone wants to come out and talk. When I'm on someone's lawn, that's my reminder to pray for them. How does God want me to invest in the people that he brings me into contact with? Maybe I need to ask God to bring me in contact with those who need to know him or with someone that I can encourage. To open my eyes to the opportunities that are around me. What would happen if each of us asked God, how do you want me to invest in someone in church today? And what would happen if each of us asked God, what, how do you want me to invest in someone who doesn't know you today? I want to leave that challenge with you. Because I believe God wants to, He longs to communicate to each of us how He wants to invest in the people around us through us. Walter, would you come and lead us in, uh, or you